The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Thank you, thank you guys. Appreciate it, man. It's so good to be back. Uh, it's such a familiar place and so many people that I love so much, so many faces that it's so good to see. And so thank you guys for your faithfulness and for continuing to just follow Jesus here in Medford. It's, it's so cool, man, uh, what God's been doing in Grants Pass. And for those of you that, that haven't come out and visited, um, yeah, we've just, like, like Paul said, we, we are in a little loft space downtown right across from the first Dutch Bros. And um, it brings all of the flavor of down, downtown that we love, homelessness, and just you never know who's going to walk in. And that's really just some of the culture of the people we're trying to reach. Um, and it's, it's been a phenomenal uh, adventure. It's been almost three years, and we've seen people come to Christ, and people um, get baptized, and people be discipled, and leaders are being raised, and and it's also church, so it's hard and it's messy, <laughs> and uh, and there's people I probably would trade, you know, or or, or whatever. Um, don't don't tell them I'd say that, but <clears throat> every church, you know, has that. Um, no, we we love we love everybody. Um, so, anyways, uh, God is good. God is doing good things, and uh, continue to pray for us if you, if you would. And why don't you grab your Bibles? Um, we're going to open God's Word to Mark chapter twelve. Uh, it's been really cool to teach through Mark with you guys. So you may not know this, but we are teaching through Mark in tandem with Heritage. And um, so every week I get to collaborate with with the staff and the leaders about how to handle God's Word in, in the particular passage. So it's a lot of fun to do that. While you're turning there. I'm going to pray. Well, Father, in such a busy culture where we are always running and gunning and just trying to get somewhere quicker, trying to make our food quicker, trying to send that text quicker, Lord, I pray that we would slow down, that we would consider the gravity of what we hold in our hands right now. That God, you are a God who speaks, and you speak clearly. You've spoken through the law, through the prophets, and in these last days you have spoken once and for all through your son, Jesus Christ. And we get the privilege of examining and applying his life to our lives. Jesus, you are more relevant now than you've ever been. These truths are not old. They're not dated. They're immediate. They have value. They have worth. So God, would you give us soft hearts to ask the right questions of your word? And would the weight of the word sit on our chest this morning? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be in Mark, and I'm going to read the passage for you because it's short, and then we'll work our way through it. This is what God's Word says, Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury 
and watched the people putting the money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Our God is a God who sees. He is the God who sees, and he sees the unseen. He sees it all, actually. He sees everything. He sees every, he sees every thought, every motive, every intention, every desire. There is nothing that God does not see, and God is particularly tuned to see the things that we choose not to or would like not to see. And there's many things like that out there. There's a story in the Old Testament that's particularly endearing to me. It's, it's one of my favorite passages because we see this side of God and what he sees and how he sees that's, that's particularly interesting. It's back in, in Genesis chapter uh, 16. You can study it more on, on your own, but essentially the story goes like this. Abraham, um, the patriarch, uh, the first Jew, if you will, the first that God called uh, into the, the Jewish ethnicity and then the, the covenant, really. Um, Abraham and Sarah were promised that they would be given this lineage, this fruitful multiplication of their, uh, of their, their lives, that they would, they would actually um, create this whole race of people. And what usually happens when God promises something is we have to sit in, in trust that he's going to do it, right? And what we typically do is we say, uh, I need to take things into my own hands and I need to make it work at my own pace. So even though God promised the son to Abraham and Sarah, uh, they didn't like the time frame and they didn't understand how it could happen because they were old and Sarah seemed to be barren. And so what did they do? They took things into their own hands and Sarah made this suggestion, why don't you take my maidservant this Egyptian slave, why don't you take her and why don't you sleep with her and produce an offspring that can be the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose because clearly God doesn't know what he's doing, right? He needs a little help. Just like in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve are like, clearly God forgot to tell us that there was stuff we needed to know about, so let's eat the fruit. So anytime we, we tell God that we're going to choose to help him out, that usually leads to a false religion. And false religion, and note this, false religion always leads to the exploiting of human beings, particularly the least in culture. So Sarah makes the suggestion to her husband, who's dumb enough to say, sure, that why don't you take Hagar and go procreate with her, and that will create the, the that'll, that'll fulfill God's promise, right? So he does that, and she gets pregnant, and she has a son, and Sarah despises Hagar. She despises her. We always despise the people that we choose to use for our own sin, don't we? We always do. When Sarah sees Hagar, she doesn't rejoice in this life. She sees with jealous eyes that this woman was able to produce a, a child, and she wasn't. She, she's immediately bitter, so she sends Hagar away. And in those days, if you were a servant and you were sent away, um, it was basically a death sentence. She has no covering. She has no protector. She has no family. She has no income. Her, she's sent away alone. Where is this going, Sam? Well, it's in this place that God sends an angel to speak to Hagar, this woman who is unseen, 
This woman who is the last, the least, the forgotten, the exploited. It's in this place that God sends an angel and speaks these words to Hagar. You can read about it in Genesis 16, if you want to turn there quickly. Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? As she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now listen to verse 13. Listen to her response to God who has seen her. She says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Or you are the God who sees me. No one else saw Hagar right in this moment. She was despised by her mistress, rejected by her boss, taken advantage of, exploited by her, those who were supposed to protect her. She is unseen, but God saw Hagar, this Egyptian Gentile woman. God saw her, and he spoke to her, and he spoke good to her, and promises to her. And then she says, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The name is El Roy, the God who sees. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Laharoi, which, if you look at your footnote, means the well of the living one who sees me between Kadesh and Beret. So, So this is incredible, right? God is the God who sees. He sees those that others don't. He sees those that we don't see. He's the God that has sight. Do you ever feel unseen? Have you ever felt unseen? It's interesting that loneliness and being alone are actually not the same thing. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed you can be with people, you can be in a city and still feel alone? You know, you can have thousands of Facebook friends and have thousands of followers on your Instagram. You can be so rooted and so connected in social uh, interactions constantly. People you work with, people that you see at the gym, people that you go to church with, and you could still feel alone. You can still feel unseen. Some of the most lonely people in the world literally live in cities. It's proven. We're more connected now than we've ever been, and we're more lonely now than we've ever been as people. We're more seen now. We have more access for people to see our lives, yet we feel unknown, don't we? You have thousands of people that see when, you're, when you have kids that know when you're in the hospital or are aware of your life and see what you had for lunch because you had to take a picture of it and put it up. But you still feel alone, don't you? You still feel alone. Here's the thing. Humans don't just want to be seen. Humans want to be accepted. And there's a difference. Humans want to be accepted. And this is what keeps a lot of people from actually being shy. This is what keeps a lot of people being shy, being scared of being seen. It's not that they don't want to be seen. It's that they're afraid that they won't be accepted. And so for some of us, we enter a crowded room and we don't try to stand out. We try to fall back. 
It's not because we're more humble. It's because we're afraid of rejection. What if I'm seen and then I'm rejected? See, the inner part of you, the most deep existential part of your humanity wants to be seen and accepted. It's what you want. It's what you're longing for. It's what your soul craves. And we do crazy things to be accepted, don't we? You remember back in high school, some of the things you did so that your friends would like you? Stupid things, right? Dumb things, things that you would never do, but just this hope, this desire that maybe your friends would like you, notice you, see you, and accept you, drove you to do the absurd. I know I did. This is why the pet industry is crushing it, by the way. My wife and I were having this conversation. We're like, you know, I wonder what's bigger, the baby industry or the pet industry? Surely the baby industry is bigger, right? Nope. The pet industry is crushing it. Why? Because your dog likes you. No matter what you do. Have you ever seen those shirts that, that say, Lord, help me to be the person my dog thinks I am? I mean, you, you yell at your dog, you call them, you tell them they're stupid, and then the next day they love you unconditionally, right? The pet industry is crushing it. Why? Because we want to be accepted. We want to be seen. We want to be loved. It's much easier to be loved by an animal than it is to be loved by a human. Humans are complex. And oftentimes they reject and they hurt us. Here's my thesis, guys. Here's my sermon in one sentence, okay? And you might write this down, and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this reality. Here's my thesis. You will never truly see until you see Jesus seeing you. You will never truly see until you see Jesus seeing you. It's the most important thing in the world. Our text this morning is a window into what Jesus sees, how Jesus sees, and who Jesus sees. Mark, the author, is going to bring us into the perspective, into the thought process, into the mindset of Jesus as he sits on the Temple Mount observing. And we're going to see what Jesus sees and how Jesus sees. You know, that actually is what the Christian life is. It's growing into seeing like Jesus, thinking like Jesus. It's called sanctification, maturing as a Christian. So that's my thesis. Our text this morning is, is a window into what Jesus sees. Now Mark, he, he continually notes throughout his gospel, if you look carefully, you would see it time and time again. Mark always notes for us what Jesus sees and how Jesus sees. Let me give you a few examples. For instance, Mark chapter 10, verse 14, uh, when the disciples were stopping the kids from coming to Jesus, it says particularly, and Mark notes it, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Okay, so Mark makes sure that we know that Jesus sees these things. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, the rich young ruler, remember the young, charismatic, successful, moral man comes to Jesus. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, it says, Mark makes sure that we see it. Jesus says, after looking at him, loved him. Jesus didn't just, uh, didn't just roll with the punches with this rich young ruler. He stopped and he looked and he observed and he saw the rich young ruler. Chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus saw the fig tree in the distance. Remember the fig tree that was a phony, the, hypocr the, the hypocritical tree, the tree that looked like it had fruit, but it didn't. And then most importantly, just, just a couple days before the text that we're looking at now, Jesus enters the temple, and Mark makes sure that we see this random thing that none of the other gospel writers uh, write down for us, and that is that he walked into the temple and he looked around. 
You can find that in Mark 11, 11. It says, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out of Bethany with the twelve. So for some reason, Mark thinks it's important that we understand that Jesus, before he started cleansing the temple, which is really judging the temple, before he started throwing tables, he took time to observe and to look and to see. Now, why am I drawing all this out? Because the question we're going to ask today is, what did Jesus see when he looked at the temple? What did Jesus see when he looked around at this impressive structure made by Herod that was one of the wonders of the world, the structure that the disciples next week will be so impressed by and that they'll want Jesus to be impressed by? Look at the stones. Look at this amazing thing. What did Jesus see when he saw the temple? The other day, our oven broke. And uh, this was the oven that was there when we moved in a few years ago. Uh, I've never pulled the thing out. Do you like pulling your oven out? I don't, right? So this thing had been there since before we'd even moved in. I'm telling you that because I don't want you to judge me. Um, spoiler alert. I pull the oven out because I have to put the new one in. And as I pull it out, and my kitchen looked pretty clean at this point. Counters were clean. Floor was clean. Things looked pretty clean. I pull the oven out, and you know what I saw. Your life for the last three years and someone else's life for the last 10 years all recorded for all to see under the oven, right? Cheerios and some kind of a food-like object that you don't know what it was once. Perhaps it was a gummy bear that melted. I don't know. Now, I I couldn't just put the oven back because my friends are coming to help me put the new oven in. So what do I have to do? I got to clean it, man. Terrible. Before I pulled that oven out, the kitchen looked pretty good. Once I pulled the oven out, I couldn't unsee what I just saw. Jesus sees the reality of the corrupt, false, hypocritical, religious system of the day. And he's not impressed. He's not impressed. He sees it. He wants to spew it out of his mouth. He's furious. That's why he cursed the tree. It was a parable, an enacted parable of the false religious system that Judaism had become. Not the pure religious system that God created on Sinai. No, no. No, it had turned and morphed and evolved or devolved into this false, works-based, hierarchical, uh, exploitative religious system that ran over widows. And Jesus sees all of it. He's furious. That's why he flips tables. And you guys already looked at that, so I'm not going to go back into that. But he sees the reality of the temple and the religious system. So what does Jesus see? He's going to see three things. And you want to write them down if you're an outline person. Here they are. He sees three things in our text. First, he sees the externally inflated. He sees, number two, the secretly exploited. And number three, the socially avoided. The externally inflated the secretly exploited, and the socially avoided. This is going to be our outline. Let's start in the beginning, the externally inflated. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, now let me remind you, by the way, of what's going on. Jesus has taken over the temple. It is Jesus' temple now. Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes are just trying to figure out how they can deconstruct him as a, as a political or a social figure at this point. Uh, at least they think he is. They're trying to think, think, how can I undermine him? And they've sent the scribes, they've sent the Pharisees, they've sent the Sadducees. None of them have been able to undermine his authority or his teaching because Jesus was smart. And so Jesus is now teaching, walking around in the temple. That's how rabbis would teach in this day, walking around on the temple mount, and he's teaching. And in his teaching, he's going to tell us something about a particular group. Look at what he says. In his teaching, he said, 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, who's Jesus talking about here? Sometimes we make the mistake of over, um, over uh, sort of putting together scribes and Pharisees. We just think, oh, these are the same kind of guys. There is a distinction between scribes. And Jesus notes the scribes here for a particular reason. And I just want to explain why. The Pharisees were typically the rabbinical tradition of the day. They were the teachers of the day. Scribe wasn't so much a party or a position. It was more of an occupation. Scribes were the one that, that for a living would basically um, understand the inner workings and the minutia of the law, and they would be the ones that, that you would have to come to if you wanted a legal document to be drafted. Okay, now remember, this is still a theocracy, even though it's under the uh, authority of Rome, uh, they still are self-governing in a lot of ways, so if something uh, needed a certificate of divorce or, or a contract of some sort, it, you need to come to a scribe, you need to find a scribe to write up that for you according to the law of Moses and Torah. So this is who the scribes are, they're the proverbial lawyers of the day. And they're among the most religiously respected people of the day, and they were all around while Jesus is talking. He, he doesn't have to remind them who he's talking about. He point them out. The scribes. Beware of the scribes. These men. Now, he, he, he specifically says to beware of them. Why does he say this? Because these men, or at least the belief that they were walking in, was toxic, it was infectious, it was destructive, and it was dangerous. Now, I, I just, I can't really overemphasize like how counterintuitive that would have been to these guys. These are the most trusted, the most astute, the most pious, the most holy. And Jesus is saying, watch out for those guys. Watch out for those guys. You remember Jesus said a similar thing when he was on the boat with his boys after they just fed the, the, the multitudes and they're, they're going across the Sea of Galilee and, and Jesus says, beware of what? The leaven of the Pharisees. Why did Jesus choose leaven? Well, because leaven is small and it's insignificant and it doesn't seem like a big deal, but once it works its way into the lump, it starts to expand. It starts to affect the lump in such a way that you can no longer separate out the leaven from the bread anymore. And Jesus is giving a similar warning here. He's saying, watch out for these guys. Watch out for the thinking of these guys. Watch out for the actions of these guys. Watch out for the hypocrisy of these guys. It's toxic. It's gangrene. It starts small, but it's impossible to weed out once it's entered the lump. He's not just warning them about the scribes. He's warning them about the thinking of the scribes, the believing of the scribes, the perspective of the scribes. Watch out for these guys. Now, Jesus is going to give us some physical examples, some visual examples of why these guys are so toxic. The first thing he's going to bring up is their apparel. Jesus is going to pick on what these guys are wearing. Let's look at it. He says, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. What is wrong with that? Is Jesus just like, what is he, like a fashion guru? First of all, these guys walk around because that's what you would do in the temple. You didn't sit and pray. Sometimes you might kneel, but mostly they would walk around and pray. And if you were a rabbi or something, you would have your, your entourage sort of following you around. So walking was a normal part of religious life, a normal part of spiritual practice. These guys, when they walk around, they were wearing these shawls. 
Jesus is talking about their, their shawls, these long, expensive wool shawls that had tassels on them, and they would go all the way to the ground. Now, why does that matter? Why is that superficial? The reality is that God said in the Old Testament that you could sew these little tassels onto your garment, and that would be a way of sort of signaling your allegiance to God, and that was a good thing. It's probably likely that Jesus would have had those tassels on his robes, right? These guys did what religious extremists do. They took it to a ridiculous degree. They said, well, if God is going to bless us, if we're more holy, if we're more set apart, if we're more sanctified by having these tassels, why don't we make a full-on robe that will really make us look, stand, like really make sure people can see we stand out. We're like level three. We're, we're really a, a step above, okay? And that's what they would do. They applied the American philosophy, which is more is always more, right? More robe, more spirituality. More doing gets you more getting. That's false religion, 101. The more I do for God, the more God does for me. You know, most of false religion is not about getting to go to heaven by doing good things. It's getting God to bless you now by doing good things. That's false religion. If I wear a big enough robe, God's going to bless me. Okay? That's what these guys are thinking. This is always the eventual trappings of works-based false religion. More until it becomes absurd. I mean, I went to Israel with some of you guys here uh, years back. It was a heritage trip. And I remember, I remember the Eastern Orthodox priests. Ridiculous, gaudy robes, big necklaces, funny-looking hats, you know. And as Westerners, we're like, wow, that's ridiculous, right? But the reality is he's thinking, well, I am holy. I, I must display that. I must signal this, right, to the, to the rest of the people. Or we saw the Jews in Israel that, that still have the phylacteries on their head. Why are they doing that? Well, God said to write the law on their heads. So they took it literally and they said, well, let's go to an extreme. Because surely God will bless us if we take these extreme positions. Now, it would be a mistake to relegate this absurdity to hyper-religious places because it's too easy for us to just go, well, that's not me. Here's the thing. We all have our own prayer shawls. We do. It's called virtue signaling. Okay? It's the way that we choose to portray ourselves in such a way that will allow others to see that we are superior to certain people in certain ways. Okay? This is what false religions do and false religious systems do. We, there's always a way to externally display that we are pious. That we are holy. Let me give you, let me give you a few. Okay, the prayer shawls and the false religion of working out. Any of you guys ever been part of that cult? I'm not saying it's wrong to work out, but there's a religion. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, I'm not in that religion anymore. I know. Okay, church planning's been hard. Okay, there is a religion of working out, and in the religion of working out, the prayer shawl looks a lot more like suns out, guns out, right? It's like, I want everyone to see this toned skin that I've worked very hard to chisel, right? And, and, and so to signal to those elite in the group that also happen to have six-pack abs and biceps, you must show skin. That's your prayer shawl, right? And, and then you go to Walmart and you see all these people that are not in shape, and you're like, yep, I am superior. It's funny, but we've, we've all done it. What about hard work? What about success? What's a prayer shawl for that false religion? How about the car you drive? Why is it so important to drive a certain car? 
Why is it so important to live in a certain house? Why is it so important for your yard to look a certain way? There's nothing wrong with having nice cars, nothing wrong with having a nice house, but it can become a prayer shawl in the false religious system of hard work. Look at how hard I worked. See what I drive? See how together my life is? It's a prayer shawl. What about the false religion of momdom? Have you ever heard of this false religion? You haven't, because I just made it up. Momdom. I'm not saying that, that moms are in a religious cult, but I am saying moms can get caught up in a religious cult in which the prayer shawls, the virtue signaling of that cult is, do you breastfeed? All those moms that are like kind of snarky right now when the, 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 the formula's running out, they're like, see, should have breastfed. It wouldn't be a problem. Yeah? That's what they do, right? That's the cult of momdom, right? Yeah. That's what you get for feeding your baby out of a can, right? These, these, this, this cult of momdom... This cult of momdom, the prayer shawl, can be the honor student bumper sticker. Or my homeschooler can beat up your honor student. Or whatever it is. They're prayer shawls. They're all prayer shawls. What about this one? Politics. You seen any prayer shawls on the back of people's cars right now? Let's go, Brandon. It's a prayer shawl. You might think it's funny. It's a prayer shawl. What is it saying? It's signaling to the hard right that I hate Biden. Thank you. I'm politically in. Or the left, right, that says what? I can say whatever I want because I don't work here. This is great. <laughs> Woo! I love it. Okay, the, the left, they say oh, something about climate, right, or, or something about uh, uh, intolerance or, 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 or uh, pro-LGBTQ or, or um, Black Lives Matter, right? That's all prayer shawls. It's signaling to a group that they are part of the superior in crew. We all do it. What about high fashion? You know that one person that wears something that 99% of the world thinks looks ridiculous? But that 1% knows that you're in. You're in. You're wearing the high fashion stuff. What about adventure and travel? That has its own prayer shawl. Your Instagram story that's perfectly filtered. You're signaling to your crew that you have an adventurous life. It's part of a religion. What about academia? Making sure everyone knows you have letters next to your name. Making sure everyone understands that you have the answers because you've been educated. It's a prayer shawl. It's a way for you to signal to those around you that you are the elite in your category. We all want it. Why? Because we want to be accepted. Right? Because we want to be seen. Because we want to be known. Because we want to stand out. Because we want to matter. It's human nature. Let me tell you some of my prayer shawls in my life. <laughs> I've had a lot. I remember I used to work at this one church. And it was really cool to have a King James Bible that had been rebound and looked like you stood in the rain for three hours. Any of you guys go to that church once? Okay. So what did I do? I go to this church and I have like this brand new crisp Bible, which I thought was cool before. And I noticed all the really spiritual people have this Bible under their arm that looks like they've had it under their arm for 30 years, right? Um, probably smells like that too. And, and I'm like, wow, I need to get a Bible like that. So what do I do? I like start handling my Bible a little rougher. I'm like... Why? Because I want a prayer shawl, man. I want to look like the scribes. I want people to see me. I want to be recognized. It's ridiculous, but I did it. I did it. There's a lot of things I could make fun of myself about. Wearing really, really, really tight pants. Anybody else part of that false religion? Yeah, I'm still working on it. I'm getting there. You know, in all seriousness, guys, like, what, what's your prayer shawl? Like, what's the thing that, that you really want people to know about you? You know, you may not care if someone thinks you go to the gym or not. That may not be your religion. But you may really care that someone calls you doctor. 
You may really care that someone understands that you're really good at what you do. You might really care that that someone doesn't judge you or think ill of you in a particular area. Why? Because you've invested so much of your life in that area, your identity's in it, right? What's your prayer shawl? What do you hope to portray to people? What do you want them to see about you? See, Jesus doesn't have an issue with shawls. Jesus isn't anti-robe. Jesus is saying the hypocrisy is in the superficiality. The hypocrisy is that these guys like to walk around and everyone look at them and say, look how much better they are than me. The scribes love it. And so do we. So do we. We love it. We love people to tell us how we are exceptional or better. And the fact that we all have to try so hard is proof that we know we're not truly accepted yet. Otherwise, we wouldn't be working at it so hard. Otherwise, we wouldn't be putting so much thought into what car we drive or how clean we keep it or what our body looks like, what clothes we wear or how successful we are. We know we're not accepted, so we keep striving. Jesus sees it all. He sees through it, and he sees it for what it is, which is phony baloney. It's fake. It's false. He's not impressed. Doesn't care. Then Jesus goes on, he says, they like, not only do they like to walk around in long robes, they like greetings in the marketplace. Okay, now this isn't a a friend greeting a friend. Hey, Bill. Everybody loves that. I love seeing my friends at the grocery store. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about this, this formal culture that had formed where it was expected that you would salute the hierarchical religious elite in the religious spaces when you would see them. You would stand and you would show pious affirmation of their title and their importance and their power. That's what Jesus is talking about. And these guys like it. They love it. They live for it. They get up in the morning and they can't wait to go to the temple because when they walk into the temple, they feel like someone. They feel like something. They like it. Now, don't demonize respect and honor. We should show honor. We should show respect to people in culture. But we shouldn't seek to be honored and we shouldn't seek to flatter. We shouldn't seek to honor someone just because we know they want it either. Then Jesus says they like the best seats. Now, in our culture, we think best seats means right in the middle at the movie theater, right? We think best seats means right up front, closest to the buffet line, right? Uh, That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about comfort here. He's talking about accolades. He's talking about identity. He's talking about the fact that in this culture, where you sat was a way to signal how important you were in that culture. So in the temple or in the synagogue, I should say, they would have a special really reserved bench along the back of the room that would be for the most important people in the room. Some churches still do this. They have chairs on the stage where the elders or whatever sit just to let you know of their superiority. When it, was, when it comes to, to, to feasts, the, the chief seats were to the right and to the left of the master of the feast, the person who was putting on. And, and it's not that they really want to hang out with the person throwing the feast. They want everyone in the feast to see that they are most important, that they are most valuable. It all comes down to signaling your own sense of self-importance. And we are no different than these guys. Don't separate yourself too far. Because we don't have these same cultural norms. You see, they're really universal. We do the same things. We do the same things. We quickly acclimate to the praises of men, and more is always needed, isn't it? 
Compliments have a double edge. We love them and then we need more. We have an insatiable appetite for people to notice that we are special. Let me ask you some questions. What, what do you desire people to recognize about you? What do you work hard? Maybe it's your front lawn. There's nothing wrong with yard work. But, but do you really, really want people to drive by and go, man, that guy, that gal, they just, they're crushing it on their yard. I'll tell you one thing someone's never said in the entire history of the world, and that's that about my yard. They drive by and they go, wow, that guy needs some time, right? He needs some, he needs some free time. What about this? You ever, you ever find yourself name dropping? You ever, you ever find yourself in a group of new people? Pastors do this a lot at, at conferences. Uh, they go there and, and nobody knows or cares how big their church is. And they really want to make sure that everyone at the table understands that there's someone in their little town. So they kind of drop in how big their church is. Oh, yeah, you know, we just hit three services. It's great. It's like, nobody cares, dude. Put your prayer shawl away. Nobody cares about how big your church is. Only you. You're the only one that cares. Sometimes, you know, uh, it's experiences. Sometimes we feel like we've had a really adventurous, fun life, and, and we're in a group of new people, and they start talking about trips they've taken, and we're like, oh, I can't wait to share my trip. Oh, you've been there? Oh, just wait. I've been to the moon and back. No. Uh, what, what's your trip? You know, I just can't wait to share, because I just want them to know that I've had more adventures than other people in this group. Am I the only one that struggles with this stuff? Are you guys, you guys feel, feeling any of this? Okay, cool. I'm, hit, I'm, I'm, I'm digging where there's taters. That's what my one friend says. Um, I kind of like it. You know, what do you keep mentioning about yourself? Because you just kind of want to make sure everybody in the group knows. Oh, yeah, I remember when I got my doctorate. Um, yeah, and I was doing my dissertation. And uh, I remember the other day when I was bench pressing 300 pounds. And, you know, like what, what are the things that, I know this, those are ridiculous examples, but we all do it. We all do it. We're terrified of people seeing our house messy or our car messy because they might think we're not together. Guess what? They already know you're not together. You're not fooling anybody. So the first thing Jesus sees is he sees the externally inflated. And guess what? He's not impressed. He's not impressed. He doesn't care. And you know, it's really important. Uh, I know this kind of seems like, like, like just making light of this, but in reality, it's really important that we understand that, that we don't live in a secular society. We live in a religious society. And, and everything in our culture that people obsess over is a religion. Okay, it's a re- the, the far left woke progressive is a religion. The far right conservative is a religion. Working out can be a religion. Diet and exercise and essential oils can be a religion. All of that can be a religion. If we look to it to give us our own sense of self-importance. And we are all susceptible to false religion. It's a false gospel that says, I can deliver you from this menial sense of unimportance that you're facing the crowd. It's all false religions. And so this is why Jesus' interaction with the, the religious is so relevant to us, because we live in a religious culture. We live in a religious culture. Now, the scribes are not only addicted to the praises of men, they are also addicted to substance. You might ask, what substance are they addicted to? Well, their substance of choice is material wealth. Okay, material wealth, which is funny because really um, scribes were not supposed to make a living off of their job. They were supposed to make a living off donations and they were supposed to learn another trade so that they could offset their income. That's why Paul was a tent maker. So, so these guys, though, loved money. They loved money. 
And so they found ways to utilize their religious system in order to get money. And this is what Jesus brings up next in verse 40. Our second point, he sees the secretly exploited. Here it is in verse 40. They like to walk around in long robes, yada, yada. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, (laughs) they will receive the greater condemnation. So here's what these guys would do, as far as we understand from history. We're trying to piece together little bits and pieces of what this might be referring to. But from what we can understand, scribes would often be hired by widows. Not hired, because they weren't allowed to be hired. Uh, They would be given a donation to write legal contract for widows. And, And sometimes this contract would include an estate or a piece of property or something. Now widows at this time, they have no voice. They have no rights Without their husband in this culture, they are completely at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, down there with children, maybe even below slaves. Some slaves had more power than divorced or uh, uh, widowed women in that day. So these scribes, who are so assumed to be righteous, would write up the legal contract for these widows, and what they would do is they would write out the widow and write themselves in. That's what a lot of scholars think this is probably referring to. And Jesus knew it. He's got these guys' number. He knows. I don't know how public this was. I don't know how surprising this was. But Jesus is aware that these guys are preying on the most vulnerable in society. The scribes were leeching off of the goodwill of these widows. And to boot, they're offering these long, flowery prayers so that they can make sure nobody suspects that they're actually a phony, that they're actually exploiting for a pretense, it says. They're actors. They're hypocrites. The word hypocrite was used to describe actors in those days. They're very good at acting. They have sinister motives. And this same garbage happens today, doesn't it? Same garbage. Some idiot in a suit gets on TV and tells your great-grandma has got nothing to do except sit there and watch TV, that if she sends money right now, he'll pray over some stupid handkerchief and throw it in the mail, and she'll be blessed. You think I'm kidding? Happens every day. And people fall for it. People fall for it. The health and wealth and prosperity gospel is so popular right now. It's exploding, particularly in poor countries, where people are told... That if they give a certain amount or do a certain thing, they'll be blessed by God. And really what they are doing, they're being fleeced. They're being fleeced by the wolves. And I just don't want you to miss the severity of what Jesus says here in verse 40. When he says they will receive the greater condemnation, that means, listen, that means that hell has layers. And the deepest layers are reserved for those who take advantage of the least in the kingdom of God. The church, when Mark was written, had already been famously known for taking care of those such as widows. So there was a juxtaposition here that those reading the book of Mark would have been immediately aware of because immediately, what do we see the church doing? We see them uh, assigning staff and leadership, the diaconos in the book of Acts, to make sure that the widows and the orphans were cared for, that the food was distributed, that this amazing koinonia, this amazing fellowship, this amazing... um, Really, it was, it, was a, it was a true holy socialism where these guys were taking care of each other. They didn't need the government to be involved. They were just generous. And all the widows were cared for. But that's a real 
religion. This is a false religion. And in false religions, the least always get exploited. It's just the truth. Now, Jesus is not only warning them about the scribes, he's warning them about a scribal attitude, which I think Jesus would suspect was probably already at work in some of those listening. Just because you're not the one up there with the robe doesn't mean you don't want to be. Some of the most material people in the world are the most poor because they think that if they had money, they would be happy. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a materialist. Jesus is saying, beware. Watch out. Watch out for anything like this. It's so sneaky, it's so pervasive, and it's so evil. So, let me ask some questions. Where is there discontinuity in your life between you and who you allow others to see? What's under your oven? I'm not saying everyone needs to see under your oven, but the Lord certainly would like to expose that in his grace in a way that he can deal with and clean. How often do you let people see the real you? Now, that's a question that we really need to ask nowadays because it's really easy to put on filters in every area of our life. How often, do you, how often are you honest with yourself about the real you? You know, some people can't be alone. They're terrified of being alone. If you're terrified of being alone, it could be because you're not really honest about who you are and you're scared to meet who you really are. And the second you're not staring at a screen or listening to a podcast or working or hanging with a friend, all of a sudden you're faced to face the reality of who you really are and you don't like it. It's a scary place to be in. Jesus is kind, he's gracious, and he sees everything. He knows everything. He sees through all the phoniness. Verse 41 gets interesting here. You're very familiar with this passage we're going to look at here. Jesus gives it as an example, I think, of what he's talking about. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put on everything she had, all she had to live. Let me paint the scene, paint the scene for you here really quick. This, this widow who has already been mentioned in verse 40, so clearly Mark's trying to connect for us this devouring of widows' houses with this picture that he wants everyone to see. This widow lives in abject poverty, which, by the way, was itself a damning parable against Israel's godlessness, because God actually designed the theocracy in such a way that widows were supposed to be cared for, but Israel is so far from God's original design in the theocracy that this widow is down to her last two cents. She comes into what would have been considered the court of women, And that's not because it was only women. It's just because it was the court that women were allowed to go into. Jewish women. There was a court of Gentiles. There was a court of Jews, which included Jewish women. And then you had the court that was exclusively for Jewish men. And so on and so forth. So this woman comes into the court of women. She has her last two cents. And in the court of women, history tells us that there would have been 13 chests in that court. And on top of those chests would have been a trumpet-like that would have kept someone from reaching their hand in and you could go up and you could contribute your offering into the cone and down to the chest. It was very public. It was very out, out and everyone could see it. 
And some of these chests were ways to make payment for sacrifices that were done on the, uh, to, to, to support the Levites. And other chests were just free will offerings. They were just a way to give God something. Now, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. This is the money that provided for the temple. This is the money that funded the, the Levites and their daily work in the temple. And so this woman, she walks in, uh, and she walks through the crowd, and she waits in line, and she watches all the opulent people throw their money in, and she gets up and she puts her last Two cents in to one of the chests. Two farthings, which Mark tells the Gentile audience was the equivalent of one Roman penny. Because Mark's writing to Gentiles, largely. Now, what does Jesus see here when he sees this woman? What does he see? Well, the first thing is the thing that you're probably expecting me to say. Which is that Jesus sees a juxtaposition between the the sincerity of the woman and uh, the the insincerity of the rich, right? That's how we've heard this taught most of our lives. We've heard that this is a picture of true faith, authentic faith. Authentic faith gives when it hurts. Authentic faith gives it all. Okay, that's how I always heard it taught. And that is certainly a very likely interpretation of this text. I'm not saying that that's false. I think there's a truth to that. But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't say anything about her faith. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, look at, look at how amazing this woman is. It might be sort of implied there if you look hard for it. There's recent scholarship, largely by John MacArthur, that has been rethinking this passage. And I think it's just worth presenting to you for a moment. Isn't it interesting that Jesus flags everybody over to look at this woman right after he just indicted the scribes for devouring widows' houses and right before he is about to say the temple is going to be disassembled in 70 AD. Wouldn't it make more sense to say that Jesus wants everyone to see this woman giving her last two pennies, not because he wants to commend her faith, but because he wants to condemn the false religious system of the day? Let me put it this way. What if this is not a commendation of the woman, but rather a condemnation of the system? See, this system had failed this woman. She's going to go home and starve now. Why? Because some scribe told her that she wants the favor of God because some Sadducee who's filthy rich told her that she wants the favor of God. She's got to come put her last two cents in this box and God will bless you. That's false religion. And this woman's going to go home hungry. I think, and I'm not alone on this, that Jesus, rather than just elevating this woman as an example of faith, I think Jesus is using this woman as an example to show how bad the system of religion had gotten. It was terrible. And that's why the tree is cursed at the roots, right? The fig tree is cursed at the roots. Look at the next verse. We're not digging into this because you guys will look at it next week, but just look at the next verse in the passage, chapter 13, verse 1. He came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple that was paid for by the money that that woman just put in the chest. You think it's an accident Mark put that here on time? Look at what Jesus says. You see these great buildings? There will be left here not one stone upon another that will not have been thrown down. I don't think this is meant to be an illustration of faith for us, although it could be. I think it's meant to be a reminder for us of how bad false religion is. That it would exploit a woman such as this. A woman like Hagar. Hagar. 
who is taken advantage of, who thinks that she has to give these last two pennies. Now, will God bless her for that? I would certainly think so. Will God care for her? I absolutely know so. But what's Jesus' point? What's Mark's point? Things are corrosive. Jesus is exposing the underbelly, underbelly of a phony and false religion. So, we've seen Jesus see the externally inflated. We've seen Jesus see the, ex, the secretly exploited. And now we're going to see one more point, and we'll close here. Jesus sees more than just the phony hypocrisy and more than just the exploitive activity. He also sees invisibility. Jesus sees the socially avoided. You know, this text teaches us something about the kind of people that Jesus is watching, the kind of people that Jesus sees. Now, the Temple Mount that this woman walked into was bursting, it was bustling. It's Passover week. There's millions of people in town. Everyone's is kind of cutting in line and sort of frustrated with each other. It's hot, trying to get their sacrifice, get their money exchanged. It's crazy. It's loud. And this woman comes in as an unassuming and unnoticeable and visible presence in a massive crowd. Every part of the temple worship was public. Sacrifices, offerings, all public. And all of the attention of the Temple Mount would have been on the rich, on the scribes, on Jesus, certainly, and on the opulent, on the powerful. Let me tell you one thing that no one in the temple would have seen. Listen, one thing that no one in the temple would have seen, it's this woman. Nobody would have seen her. She is the invisible woman. She's the invisible woman. Nobody saw her. She, she didn't have a prayer shawl. She didn't have a great offering. She didn't have important position. She didn't have a following. She would have been poor. She would have been frail and thin and underdressed and powerless and voiceless and purposeless like a grain of sand on the beach. She would have blended in. Nobody notices this woman except Elroy, the God who sees. The God who sees. The God who saw Hagar saw this woman. He sees her. She is seen, I can imagine her inner dialogue as she's walking up to this box that she had walked up to so many times, putting her money in time and time and time again, wondering if maybe this time she would give enough that God would bless her, that God would lift her out of poverty, that God would send her another husband, that someone would be her kinsman, redeemer perhaps, and, and pull her out of her poverty. She comes again and again and again, and every single person misses her except Jesus. He sees her. And I can imagine her saying to herself, does anyone care that I'm here? Does anyone see me? Does anyone know that I'm here? Or is everyone's attention somewhere else? You know, I've talked to elderly folks and I've talked to homeless people and there is a reality that is invisibility. Where you reach a point in life or in your station and culture where people no longer see you or they try to not see you. Age does this. Grandkids stop calling. People stop visiting. Your friends all pass away. And the only friend you have left is your television. It's sad. It's a reality for so many. And this is the reality for this woman. She has no one. But Jesus sees her. Because see, Jesus' ear is tuned to what would have been considered the insignificant sound of small copper coins hitting the, tar the top of large offerings. He heard it. See, Jesus sees the invisible woman. Jesus loves the invisible woman. 
Jesus came to die for the invisible woman within a matter of hours here so that this woman doesn't have to keep giving her last pennies to receive God's favor because when Jesus goes to the cross, the Spirit of God will escape and Jesus' perfection will be imputed to her and God's favor will be hers. Jesus sees this woman and he thinks to himself, I would imagine possibly in his mind, he thinks, this is why I came. So that this woman could have favor, the favor of God. That by faith, she could have access to the riches of God. Jesus came to judge the system that exploited this woman. Jesus came so that his spirit could live within this invisible woman. And Jesus came so that this invisible woman could be adopted and get a new family with a better father, with brothers and sisters and daughters. You know, the most rich pieces of Christianity is this. It's the family of God. That you have brothers, you have a wealth, a riches of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and crazy aunts and uncles. You have all of that. This woman, Jesus came so that she could have a family. If she would simply believe in him. Jesus came to make a home for the invisible woman. And Jesus came on behalf of the invisible woman to advocate for the invisible woman. Now, we don't know what happens in her story. We don't know how genuine her heart is. We don't know what she's doing or how she's doing it. All of that is left up to conjecture. But I just want to say one thing that I know for sure. Jesus didn't miss her. He saw her. And I want to say that forcefully to you this morning. Jesus sees you. You don't need to be seen by others. He sees you. And it's enough. And it was not this woman's extravagant generosity that made Jesus see her. It was Jesus' extravagant grace that made him see her. It was not because she gave her two cents that Jesus noticed her faith. No, Jesus noticed her. By his grace, by his compassion. So what? So what? You don't have to catch Jesus' eye with your religious works. He already sees you. You are known. He wants your generosity, but he doesn't want your guilt-based religion. He doesn't want your prayer shawls. He's unimpressed. So stop looking for man to provide only what, what only God can. Stop putting on the, the best side of yourself publicly because you want to be accepted. God accepts you in Christ by faith. Jesus' perfect acceptance has been given to you, Christian. You're accepted. If you're in Christ, he sees you and he knows you. My thesis, once again, you will never truly see, listen, you will never truly see until you see Jesus seeing you. That is when life begins. Hagar's life began when she saw that God saw her. Your life begins when you see that Jesus sees you. That's what Paul was talking about in Corinthians. He said, I don't care if you judge me. Judge me all you want. He said, I don't even judge myself. And he said, it's not this that, that gets me off the hook. He says, God judges me. God is the one. God sits in the courtroom. He is my judge. And he sees me. And he's known me. When we are seen fully and accepted completely, we can live freely. Anybody want to live freely? You need to believe the gospel. That's where freedom lives. 
Freedom lives when you stop looking for someone to make you feel important enough and you start to realize that your importance is found in Christ. And we need to believe it every day, every second, every moment because we forget it, don't we? And we subscribe to other false gospels. We think maybe working out will make me happier. Maybe making more money will make me happier. Maybe minimalism and poverty will make me more happy. Maybe more religious activity will make me happy. No, only the gospel, only the finished and perfect love of God for you that he sees you and knows you and knows your hypocrisy and your superficiality and your failures and your weakness and your sin and you're still accepted because of Christ. That's good news, amen? Anybody alive? Amen. The other day, I was on the beach. I'll close with this. The other day, I was on the beach, and I was walking with my kids, and it was low tide, and they were just running around having the time of their life with buckets, and they're throwing treasures in their buckets. A lot of crab carcasses that ended up in the car, and it smelled terrible on the drive home. We're like, nope, those aren't treasures. That's a dead carcass. No, it's a crab. Okay. So I'm walking, and I'm watching my kids just like have the time of their life finding what I would consider junk on the beach, but to them it's valuable, right? And I was struck. I was kind of in this pondering mood. I was just struck by the billions and trillions of gazillions of sand and rocks and just how, how vast creation is. And the fact that God knows every single one of them is impressive to me. I always get contemplative at the ocean. You know, you're looking out of the vast array of the, of the sea, like, wow, God's big, you know? And as I'm walking and I'm looking at all these rocks and thinking, you know, all these rocks, they're, they're, just, they're, just so, they're not valuable to me. And I was thinking it'd be cool to find one that was really cool. It could become valuable to me. So I looked down and I saw one, and it was, it was kind of cool. It's like a perfect skipping rock. It's, it's pretty flat, but it's not amazing. It's, there's nothing about it that's truly phenomenal. It's just, it's just kind of cool. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick that up. I'm going to put it in my pocket. And then I didn't, didn't really realize it, but every time I put my hand in my pocket, I would just kind of play with it. And then we went to the playground the day, and I was kind of flipping it and enjoying it, and just kind of like, oh, this, I kind of like this thing. It's just something to play with. All of a sudden, it started to grow in value to me. I accidentally dropped it over a fence. I went clear around to go get it. I'm like, why am I going all the way here to get a rock? What am I thinking? Why is this rock all of a sudden so valuable? Well, I don't know, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, this rock has zero value unless I give it that value. This rock on the beach, before I picked it up, if it were a person, it would have lived very insecure. What makes me different than all the other rocks? There's thousands of rocks. <laughs> what made this rock valuable was that a superior, valuable mind picked it up and ascribed value to it. The value is not intrinsic to it. The value is in the fact that I value it. Are you with me? What is the most valuable thing about you? It is that God values you. God sees you, and he does not just see one of millions. He sees you, fearfully, wonderfully made. He sees the one whom he sent his son to die, to spend the most costly blood in the universe, to purchase, to redeem. He sees one, if you're a Christian, whose spirit, his spirit lives within. The most important thing about you is that God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He's forgiven you. So I've been carrying this rock around. And every time I start to feel insecure, which is a lot, every time I start to feel like, man, maybe I need to mention something I've done in this group so I feel important to her, or maybe I need to just, just sort of put myself out in a way that makes me look a little better than I am, I just kind of remember this rock like, hey, this, this is what makes you valuable. It's God's love for you. It's God's love for you. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man went into a field, and he found a treasure. The treasure was so valuable that he went and sold everything he had. You are the treasure. And what makes you valuable is not you intrinsically. It's the value that God has placed on you because he is the superior value in the universe. Amen?
Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to invite the band back up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Mark. Thank you for the superiority, Lord, of your favor and your love and your kindness over anything this world could ever give us. God, we recognize that creation is just simply not enough for us. We need the divine. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our prayer shawls, see where we have chosen to be fake, and that we would take those off and instead be clothed in Christ. Lord, that when we lay our head down tonight, we wouldn't be cycling through our day to think if we have done enough or if we're good enough. Instead, we would place the gospel in front of our eyes and in our hearts and be reminded that, Jesus, you are enough. It is finished. Father, thank you for the gospel, and we just want to sing in praise to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.